You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. If there was a philanthropist 500 years ago that said, no, I'm not going to feed the poor, I'm going to worry about the existential risk, I doubt their prediction would have made any difference in terms of what came later. Hello, welcome to Ezra Clunch on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Let me begin with an announcement that will be exciting to, I don't know, a couple of you. We're looking for an executive producer of audio for Vox's podcast. This is a senior job. It'll be driving the editorial direction of our whole podcast operation. And in that role, a big piece of it will be working with me on this show. I would love someone who knows the show, who has ideas about where it could go, what it could become, who should be on it. You can find the job listing by going to voxmedia.com slash careers. Again, that is voxmedia.com slash careers. Scroll all the way down to studio job listings and you'll see the job. All right, today's show. Today's show is special. It coincides with some launches for us here at Vox uh, of a new section called Future Perfect and of a new podcast called Future Perfect. You can subscribe to Future Perfect wherever you get this podcast. It's by my colleague and friend Dylan Matthews. And this is something that Dylan and I have been working on for literally for years. Um, It's inspired by the effective altruism movement, which is this movement trying to use the best evidence we have to figure out how to do the most good in the world at the least cost. And that's what it's about. Every Wednesday, Dylan interviews someone with a big idea about making the world a better place, an idea you probably haven't heard before. These are not ideas that are, for the most part, currently in the mainstream of what we talk about. And I don't know. So much of the news right now is about what's going wrong. It's worth actually spending some time thinking hard and thinking big about what could go right. I'm really, really excited about this podcast, about this section. I really recommend subscribing to it, checking it out. It is great. On that note, my guest this week is Bill Gates. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Gates's bio because what would be the point? You know who Bill Gates is. But his foundation just released its annual goalkeepers report, which is about trying to figure out if the world really is getting better and, and tracking how much better or how much worse it's getting. And I was surprised to read it. Gates, he's usually so optimistic. But this time, it was a report that had a lot of fear in it. Gates was afraid that a lot of the progress on reducing the number of people, the percentage of people in the world who live in extreme poverty, was going to be reversed. And what he was worried about is a very difficult topic in philanthropy, just a difficult topic. Specifically here, whether a lot of population growth in Africa would lead to more people in poverty in the next century. The reason this topic is really dangerous is because the history of the philanthropy world worrying about population questions is an unbelievably ugly one, full of bad predictions and cruel 
solutions. I don't even know what to call them. They made everything a whole lot worse. Um, the Gates is here trying to take a different tact. One that's more about the question of poverty than of population. If you take it as a given that you're going to have a lot more population growth in Africa, then it means that one of the most important things the world needs to do is make sure those children are growing up in a situation where they're healthy, where they're growing up with their full capabilities, where they can have good, productive, safe lives. And, and how do we do that? What is necessary for here? What does the world owe them? We talk about that. We talk about what he thinks the issues are there, as well as the Asia growth story and how that may or may not be a model, whether political freedom is necessary for economic development, whether artificial intelligence will kill us all, um, how to think about animal suffering. There's a lot in this discussion. So I think you all are going to enjoy it. So as you can email me at EzraKleinShowBox.com. Here's Bill Gates. Bill Gates, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. You wrote something in your New York Times review of Yuval Noah Harari's recent book, and you said that I have to be careful not to fool myself into thinking things are better or worse than they actually are. I wanted to talk about what is the system you use to actually do that? Well, of course, if you work in an area, you become very you know, committed to that area, you know, say polio eradication, where we're you know, almost a decade into very deep involvement in helping that succeed. And so, you know, drawing in people uh, who are more objective about our chance of success is very important there because we're going to have a bit of a bias that, hey, we've come so far and we have huge sunk costs in it uh, and we, you know, feel like we're very, very close. You know, are we being ob objective in that? So, you know, numbers that are, are gathered in an accurate way, uh, create that baseline. And that's why funding people like IHME, the uh, group that does all the health uh, statistics for the world, that's been a key investment because that's always a baseline of are the new vaccines and medicines we're getting out there actually uh, saving lives and you know where is it going well, where is it falling behind? So much of the the work that Harari does in those books, which you've you've talked about quite a bit, is about recognizing how much in our lives and in our institutions is really built on stories that we tell ourselves and each other. And, and it made me curious, given the reaction you've had to to those books, what are some of the stories that you've begun to see as stories and, and begun to question as such? Well, Harari talks about how religions played a very central role. And how as you have a lot of people who are not as involved in religion or that that's created a little bit of a, a vacuum in terms of what are people, you know, how do they view themselves and what do they think is important or what are they excited about or where do they get their values from? And, you know, he talks about how work uh, for a lot of people, is a, a central affiliation. And yet, if work uh, becomes you know, less necessary over a long span of time, then you know, the idea of purpose and connection will have to rethink what is important to us. His most recent book is more near-term focused. And there he's talking about the elites versus the non-elites and and how people, whether people feel like they want to engage globally, embrace new technology, and you know how, at the very least, we're in a cycle where uh, some of these 
ideas of global cooperation are being questioned. Do you see a way out of that cycle? Well, the toughest problems we need to solve, helping the remaining poor countries uplift their people, uh, avoiding pandemics uh, that are more likely to start in poor countries but could spread globally, uh, reducing the challenge of climate change. You know, all these things are global endeavors, you know, the kind of research and innovation that will help us cure disease or have enough food for everybody to be fully nourished. All of those things are global. No single country is going to completely solve those things. So there's a certain logic in terms of what humanity needs that we ought to find methods of cooperation. Global marketplaces have provided a lot of that cooperation. And it's a point he makes that, you know, by you know, having money that is basically accepted anywhere in the world and extensive trade systems and extensive exchange of information, you know, we are far, far more global than at any time in the past. And and so there are positive aspects of that we need need to embrace. So this, I think, is a good bridge to the new goalkeepers report. You so often make a point, in, in my experience, of pushing an optimistic narrative in the face of a pessimistic or increasingly pessimistic culture. But, but in the new report, you begin by writing, uh, to put it bluntly, decades of stunning progress in the fight against poverty and disease may be on the verge of stalling. What, why is that? Well, the, the point there is that the dramatic decline of 26% of the world's population being in extreme poverty down to 9%. A lot of that came because Asian countries, uh, first China and then later India, Indonesia, and Pakistan and Bangladesh, did a reasonable job of governance. They invested in health. They invested in agricultural productivity. They improved their education systems. And so they lifted a lot of their population out of extreme poverty. So it's kind of amazing as you look at the projection out through 2050, the portion of people in extreme poverty will overwhelmingly be on one continent, which is Africa. And it means that unless we do a good job in those countries where an increasing portion of the births are taking place, we won't see anywhere near that decline uh, that we saw over the last 25 years. There's a statistic in, in the report that I think is interesting here, just to ground this discussion we're having, which is that nearly 60% of Africans are under the age of 25. Uh, compare that to 27% of Europeans. The median age across Africa is 18. Compare that to 35 years old in North America or 47 in Japan. So you have this continent that is quite a bit poorer and quite a bit younger and is going to have quite a bit more population increase than we're going to see in in other places over the next X number of decades. And I think it raises this big background question, which I wanted to see if you had a framework on, which is why is Africa poor? Why compared to other continents at this point in history do you believe Africa is poorer than Asia is at this point, or Europe, or North America? Well, Africa, 
of course, is not nearly as poor as it was in the past. The you know, number of kids in education, the childhood survival rate, there have been quite a bit of improvement there. But you know, Africa, the geography is tough. Uh, the disease burden is tough. You know, most of the continent, the typical crops that were refined and developed in the rest of the world, the ecosystems are, are very, very different. And so Asia, Europe, and the United States, those northern hemisphere areas, they developed in terms of getting rid of disease, being able to have infrastructure for very efficient transport, and you know, having more than enough food to feed the population. They got into a virtuous cycle of high education, high discovery, high innovation, and generally quite strong governance where the idea that you're a citizen of a country and uh, you know that country raises resources that it, it puts into justice and education, that from sometime in the 1700s to the present was a, a very successful system. In Africa, there was colonialism, which certainly held those countries back. There's the geography that that makes moving things across the country very difficult. The rivers aren't as navigable. Because you're equatorial, you don't have winters where the disease burden or the pathogens get killed off during the winter. So equatorial regions have things like malaria in a very different way than other parts of the world. And so the, you know, the tribal affiliation, the colonialism, the agricultural productivity, a variety of factors have meant that Africa is lagging behind. Now, South Africa, Botswana, parts of the continent that have gotten themselves up to this middle-income level. But particularly, if you look at the central areas, northern Nigeria, the Sahel, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, the level of development there is not very high at all. It's mostly subsistence farming, uh, very, very little infrastructure, uh, very little resource for the government, and very little capacity to build up even the basic health and education systems. Can you talk a little bit about that interaction between geographies and disease burdens and land usability and then institutional and economic development? Because I think somebody could listen to this and hear that and say, yeah, that might have been uh, a reasonable answer 300 or 400 years ago or 500 years ago when we're talking about uh, overwhelmingly agricultural economies. But now, I mean, you can import food, there are, you know, are container ships, there's so much you can do. But, but as I understand the story you're telling and the, way, and the way it's often told, these things have an interaction effect with governance institutions and economic institutions that then um, affects whether or not individual countries are able to, to climb that ladder of development. So can you talk a little bit about how those things interact to each other? Yeah, well, there's many, many things that if you know the GDP level of a country, you can see, okay, can they afford to build a strong education system? You know, can they build the road and electric infrastructure that they need? And so there is a type of poverty trap where if your economy doesn't develop, then it's very hard to bootstrap those things. Africa in particular, you know, it's hard to move physical goods around. Europe was very lucky in that um, 
you could move things by sea. They built up canal systems. Some mountains caused a challenge, but the you know the transport cost uh, was fairly low. And you had this temperate zone area that extend all the way into Asia. That's you know why they use this term Eurasia, where a lot of development, including the initial industrial age, gets going there. You know, at that time, the same educational things are not happening in Africa. There's not that same level of investment. And you have, you know, fragmentation where you don't have the notion of a nation state that you belong to as a a key organizing principle so you can scale up and, you know, make these these kinds of investments. So it's geography, it's temperature. You know, the temperate zone countries, you know, got way, way ahead. And so now when we have some equatorial countries like a, a Malaysia or parts of India that are actually having economic development, that's a fantastic thing. But it's it's still very predictive, whether you're temperate or, or tropical, how well you will have done in economic development. Uh, Now, if we can take those parasitic diseases and the low agricultural productivity, malaria, if we can get rid of those and through aid get some bootstrap in terms of the infrastructure, particularly this human capital, which is health and education, then you can get the uplift. And Asia, where the geography and disease burden isn't quite as bad, but Asia, which is where over half you know, the world's population is today, has provided an example. You know, I've taken to African leaders many times the book, How Asia Works, uh, where uh, Stubman talks about the progression, starting with agricultural productivity as a key bootstrap to get to middle-income levels. Do you see the Asia story as primarily a story of institutional development? Well, institutions are a huge part of the mix, but you can only get there if you have the resources, either locally raised or through donors, that you're creating the healthcare system and the education system and the roads and the, you know, telling farmers what to do. You know, India in the 1960s and 70s, because there've been a lot of investments in roads, as the green revolution crops came along, the agricultural productivity more than doubled. And it was very timely because a lot of people had expected mass starvation in Asia as their population growth had stayed high into those decades. But in fact, the institutional capacity, the roads, the new seeds came together and actually nutritional levels actually went up during that time period. And so Asia is absolutely a huge source of learning about what can go on in Africa. There are African exemplars. Um, Ethiopia starts out 20 years ago as one of the very, very poorest uh, countries that, you know, when you thought about famine in Africa, Somalia and Ethiopia are the, the two countries that would come to mind. Now Ethiopia, although it still can have uh, droughts with weather variability, it's now feeding itself because that agricultural productivity has gone up. And so they're an exemplar in this this human capital equation. They've really thought about local resources, donor money, and the health and education systems that are constantly improving 
you know, so that's over 90 million people that really are following the path that should get them to middle income and, and self-sufficiency. The, the human capital piece of this, I think, is really important. Um, one of the most striking uh, statistics in the report to me was that a third of African children are stunted. Can you talk about uh, what stunting means? Yeah, stunting formally is that your height is substantially below what it should be for your age. Unfortunately, it also means that you haven't had access to nutrition. So not just your stature, your height, but also your overall physical capacity and your mentally capacity isn't anywhere near what it would be if you'd had proper nutrition. Now, understanding exactly why, even in the same family or even with twins, some kids end up with severe malnutrition, including uh, stunting, and why others don't. There's a lot of amazing work nowadays where understanding things that happen in the, the kid's gut, in their uh, the species of bacteria called the microbiome, what's going on there and how we should be able to come up with interventions that reduce this quite a bit. So in, in extreme cases where you have famine, you're just not getting enough calories. And, you know, that's very bad. But when you're right at the edge and most of the kids are getting enough calories, some are having disease or a microbiome that gets them off track. And that becomes a negative feedback that they have inflammation in their gut. And so they're not able to absorb the nutrition. So this is very, very important to solve because if you don't get that nutritional piece right, then your investments in educating that kid, both for the kid individually and uh, for the country, aren't going to create the economic payoff, the opportunity that you expect. And so it's a huge area of focus. And, you know, it's great now we actually have some leads on how we have to change the diet, what micronutrients might be missing, and, and get those numbers down dramatically and get the physical and mental capacity up up to its full potential. If I'm not wrong, so Peru had a huge stunting problem and cut it by something like half in the past few years, decades, right? Yeah, so Peru was an example on that that we highlighted uh, last year. This year, we're also talking about uh, Brazil. You know, these are very explicit programs where they diversified the diet. And we do know although it's not easy to do, if you get more protein into the diet, uh, milk, eggs, meat, that that reduces the stunting levels quite a bit. And so you know, we've been getting chickens out to uh, lots of poor households uh, so that they can both have the eggs for their own consumption and gain some cash income by selling some of the eggs as well. And in a deeper way, what was the Peru program that was so successful? What did they do? Well, you first want to make sure that the overall dietary levels, the basic nutrition, you know, you're getting enough food out to all families. And so you'll often have, you know, go and look particularly in the rural areas and see what those diets look like and make sure people understand about a diverse diet. You'll also go out and do weighing programs so you'll find the children that are falling behind and get supplemental foods to those children. 
The other thing you do is you do food fortification. So for like vitamin A, you can get it in to the, the wheat or maize they're eating so that when it goes to the processing center, you're adding some vitamin A and mixing it in. So it's actually not even that noticeable. But if you require the food producers in a country to do this supplementation, there's a number of those micronutrients that you can, in a very efficient way, at a population level, get rid of those deficiencies. And so there are a number of tactics where you get the broad population diet to be better, you get the micronutrients to be more available, and then you're identifying these kids that are falling behind, largely through weighing programs, and then get things like peanut-based or legume-based nutritional supplements that are very protein-rich and get the the kid back uh, onto uh, the right track. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So I want to ask a question that's going to reveal how dumb I am about all this. This seems like a problem that is straightforward in what it is, reasonably straightforward in how to solve it, and not all that expensive to solve, making sure children have enough protein and enough micronutrients to just reach uh, a non-stunted level of development. Why has the world not solved it? Is this a problem that is hard to solve, or is this a problem that the global community could solve, but just has not had the will or the interest in doing so? Some things like getting iodine into salt, which helps with cretinism, that is the iodine is very important for brain development. There, because it's been very cheap, the achievement level, uh, even in very poor countries, has actually been you know, very, very good. Going out and finding those kids who are falling behind and weighing them, and then making sure if you have these supplemental foods that they get targeted, that is that the adults and the older children aren't taking those peanut-based supplements, that is actually fairly difficult. You know, targeted delivery to children that are out in very rural areas uh, requires a, a level of sophistication that's even beyond getting vaccination out to the children. So we have countries like Ethiopia and Tanzania that get well over 90% of their kids the vaccines 
where this effort to go out and find those kids that are falling behind isn't done and then getting those targeted foods out to them, you know, is another step that's fairly difficult. So, you know, as we have insights into why those kids start to fall behind and what we need to do with micronutrients, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about this problem, but it's been one of the toughest, you know. Uh, there aren't as many exemplars in getting stunting down at a low level of income as there are the overall reduction in childhood death, where just getting your vaccine coverage up gives you dramatic gains in that measure. I mean, it sounds like for this problem and for a lot of the others, the best the, the best cure, and, and I use the term cure here loosely, is for the country itself to develop, for the governance institutions, economic institutions to, to strengthen. And so one thing I wondered reading this report is how much the philanthropy community feels it knows, how much the Gate Foundation feels it knows about improving the quality of governance. It, it does seem that the difference between the quality of governance in, say, China and Nigeria or, or China and, and, na- and name your place, to say nothing of, say, South Korea, to look at governments that have really seemed to have improved only in the past 50, 60 years, that would be one of the biggest things we could do on, on human welfare. But, but I very rarely hear that as a problem people are looking at. Is that because it's a problem that people don't know how to tackle or because it is a problem that doesn't seem like it is the philanthropy community's right or responsibility to tackle? Well, certainly when you have a government that's willing, and again, I'll take Ethiopia, when Prime Minister, it was Mellis at the time, reached out to our foundation and others and says, hey, I, I really want to improve agricultural productivity and talk to me, help bring experts in, let's come up with a plan. You know, there was a dialogue there and he started out not believing in market mechanisms. Over time, he was convinced that for parts of their agricultural economy, having agro dealers and using price signals was very important, but he, he funded the training programs. He got very good execution. So you're absolutely right. When you have very poor governance, it is a a huge block to these issues. However, if you wait, you know, usually you only get really good governance once a country is middle income. So, you know, if you can solve these problems that you get causation running the other way, that is the economy is, is growing and you have broad participation and the pie is getting bigger, the idea that governments is just fighting over the small pie that's there versus all participating together in policies that grow the pie for everyone, you can get stuck in, you know, okay, it's our turn, you know, of our voting block, you know, our caste, our ethnic group to take advantage of the modest resources versus these future growth policies. You know, so when you have a leader like Kagame in Rwanda who, you know, appoints good people and really cares about these results, it's a fantastic thing. Now, neither Ethiopia or Rwanda check every box of excellent government, and it's likely that those countries, until they get to middle-income status, they won't, you know, have all those characteristics. You know, neither did, you know, South Korea and many other countries. But we wish we knew how to help even more with governments. We know it's very, very important. And we jump on opportunities where a government's willing to improve and really try and make sure they've 
got all the resources possible. So for example, I'm on the phone multiple times a year with governors of six of the 18 states in Northern Nigeria. And these are governors who've said they want to have a good primary health care system. They want their vaccine coverage rates, which are below 40%, to get up to 90%. And so we're going through data on these video conference calls about, okay, are the workers there? Is the supply there? Do the mothers know where they need to go? What is it we need to do to, to get that result? And, you know, so it's great that there's these six governors. If that goes well, you know, then the other 12, some of them will be drawn in and we'll have a, a model of success there. And so holding up the exemplars, you know, I think is, is very, very important and help coming along with capacity so that, you know, when the priority is there, you know, within like a four-year period, people really can see the dramatic improvement. There's so much here. So let me start here. Are, are you familiar with Danny Roderick's premature industrialization thesis? I don't think so, no. So so there's this idea, and I'm going to mangle it a little bit in the retelling, but Roderick is a, he's a great developmental economist. He's studied the Asian rise and has been, I think, one of the, the folks really on the forefront of understanding the complexities of development as opposed to trying to tell a simple story about it. And something he's become worried about is the idea that there was a path to development over, let's say, the 20th century, early 21st century that was very manufacturing driven, but that the way globalization has worked, the way automation has worked and bringing down the, the, the price of a lot of things, the way shipping is working, that the economic development path that a lot of these Asian countries followed, where they basically came in at very low levels in the manufacturing market – and um, use that to clamber up the, the value ladder is not going to be available to countries that are trying to industrialize right now. Now, maybe they'll get somewhere and then they'll, they'll de-industrialize or maybe they just won't be able to get on, on that part of the ladder at all. Something I'm hearing when what you're saying, what, what, what made me think of it is this idea that the quality of governance is not just a driver of economic development, but is driven by it as well. That there's some relationship there that you're going to get better governance as the country gets richer. But if some of the approaches to making your country richer are beginning to break down, then some of those models may not work as well. And so the question I, it led me to is whether or not in what you see or what you've read, there's a concern that the old growth models, or at least the growth models that we thought were this recipe for poor countries to become middle income, to, to really develop very quickly, maybe are not there anymore, at least not there in the way they were, because again, automation is getting so much cheaper because globalization is expanding the global supply of labor so quickly. And so it's going to be much more difficult to improve governance in the way other countries were able to because that, that economic driver of improved governance, while it's not going to be absent, is going to be harder to use as a, as a propulsive force. Well, it is true that economic development, you want to have some level of exportable goods so that there are things like advanced products, jets or... Uh, certain factory-type goods that you can import. The portion of your country that needs to be export-oriented is very, very small. Most of what happens in your economy is, is going to be domestically based. The way you build that export piece is changing as 
manufacturing globally is providing less jobs. And it was never going to be likely that most of Africa would be a manufacturing exporter. The cost of electricity, the logistics, the lack of navigable rivers. There are a few countries, Ethiopia is actually top of the list, Kenya to some degree, Tanzania. They can do some manufacturing export. But for Africa, you know, given the the unused land, a lot of it will be agricultural export, a lot of it will be service export. India has never had a meaningful uh, manufacturing export sector, and yet, you know, they're a real exemplar. So it's fair to say that, you know, making textiles like Bangladesh or, or being the factory of the world like China or Vietnam, those won't be the approach. But all of these success stories start with net agricultural export. And that's very possible in the African context as you Im- improve the productivity. So then let me ask this question, the, the other version of this question uh, from the other direction, which is when I heard discussions of changing governance structures to, to make economic growth more possible and more rapid you know, 10, 15 years ago, they were more optimistic in this way. There, there was a belief that you needed something that was much more like the American model, free markets, free minds kind of thing. And now with the rise of China, but also a lot of other countries that have managed to induce very, very rapid development through market-oriented on some level, but also much more authoritarian governance structures. And when you look around the world right now, if you're a developing economy and you're looking at what is a model that, that you might paste onto your economy, I think for all kinds of reasons, there have begun to be more questions about America's political systems, but also China has become a very powerful uh, exemplar. And so have quite a few others. I mean, you brought up uh, Kagame in Rwanda, who has both done some remarkable things in terms of governance in, in the economy and has also, as I understand it, become much more authoritarian and strong-arming in the way he's running his country. Do you worry that the model that countries are beginning to look to for governance the way they see the connection to economic development is much less in a model that prizes other kinds of freedom or, in the classical sense, liberalism. Well, there are not examples of countries who've grown their economy on a broad basis without using market-based pricing. That is, without allocating resources within their country and engaging in export based on market-based pricing. And So, you know, although China is called a communist country, the way they allocate resources is extremely market-driven. You know, they don't have as many things like the U.S. post office where, you know, it's just subsidized forever. So it's important to separate out the economic model of development from that political model. Now, whatever the political model is, this willingness to reduce corruption, to get the health and education system working well, that makes a huge difference. So, you know, Taiwan, when it developed, it was an autocracy. Korea, when it developed, it, it was a, under a dictator. And then they, you know, they progressed to more democratic forms of government. Now, you know, China certainly raises the question that now they're at middle income level, Will their political model progress or not? You know, and some people looking at the last few years and not seeing much progress in that direction are saying, can you have middle income 
uh, or even eventually upper-income countries without a Western model of democracy? That's a you know a valid question and important in terms of the rights of the people in those countries. But economic development isn't quite as stringent. It's more about taking a long-term view and making these human capital investments. And, you know, that's valuable. And there are a number of African countries that are exemplars in, in doing that. You know, I read um, Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, partly on, on your very glowing endorsement of it. And it's a book I've been thinking about for a bit since I read it, because it, it seems to me that the argument there, to, to go back a little bit to our, this idea of stories that we tell ourselves or don't tell ourselves, is that we've had this collection of values that have powered the most remarkable increase in both human development and human freedom you know, that, that the species has ever known. And that if we become pessimistic or uncommitted to those ideas, that the future of that is in peril, um, or at least that seemed to me to often be sometimes explicit, but more often the implicit argument of it. Do you think that we are in danger as a planet or, or, as a, or, or even as a country of losing commitment or losing sight of the ideas that have powered the kind of growth and, and kind of advances we've seen since roughly the Industrial Revolution? Or are you more sanguine that there are a lot of different paths towards advancement than the Western one? The idea of market-based economies, as I say, there aren't any counterexamples to that, you know, engaging in the world economy uh, being the path to development. And I do think it's always important for people to understand the success that we've had because the willingness to play with extreme approaches that, oh, you know, let's give up on global trade or uh, let's give up on market-based pricing, your willingness to embrace more extreme things will be much higher if you don't have a sense the current system is working. And, you know, so it's very important democracies, you know, are supposed to be the most self-correcting systems. It's important for them to look at why has either resentment of the elites or social policies, you know, why have they progressed in such a way that the satisfaction with what the government is doing, the polarization, and the willingness to at least consider more extreme ways of, of running things are a bit stronger now. You know, is this a cycle? What will the adjustment be? It is a story that's been incredibly successful by and large. And my belief is that that will continue. That is, you know, we'll solve more health problems, you know, in the decades ahead. We'll solve agricultural productivity problems in the decades ahead. And that you know, the human condition will improve, but, you know, some of the, the cycle we're in right now is making people question some of these things like, is helping other countries a good thing? Is dealing with a problem that's a long-term problem like climate change, should that be a, a priority or not? I want to go back to something you said in, in the way I asked this, which is that there has never been or is not a good example of countries becoming genuinely rich in the, in the way that, that some are now without embracing market-based pricing. 
But I think that there's a, a larger view of these other things, you know, freedom of speech, so different kinds of political rights, but also ways that, that we relate to each other and the role that they have played in our advancement. And, and something I'm, I'm hearing uh, from you, which is not to say these other things are not important, but that maybe they're actually not at the core of it. I guess the question I'm asking here is how much are political rights intertwined with economic development and how much are they possibly severable such that the argument that has long been made, which is a, often an economic self-interest argument, that if you don't have these things, you're not going to have these other things, that that argument may not hold the weight we thought it would. And so, you know, the almost Fukuyama-like end of history idea that things are just going to go really in one direction from here, because if you didn't follow on to that sort of Western mixed economy pro-democratic direction, you weren't going to get where you wanted to go. We can't trust that. The, the, the future is going to be much more of a fight over what is the right model than we've thought in recent times. Well, the, the problem with the autocratic systems is that eventually you get a leader who isn't doing a good job. And so you can have, you know, take what's happened in, in Venezuela where they tried running a lot of the economy on a command basis without market signals. You know, they, they went backwards quite a bit. There's never been as strong a coupling between economic growth and democratic freedoms as we'd all like, because we like economic growth and we like democratic freedoms. But the China versus India example, you know, China grew dramatically faster than India did. Now, India's a very good story. It's it's growing, you know, the health statistics are improving, you know, it's on quite a good path. But, you know, it's not even close to what, what happened in China, what happened in South Korea, what happened in Taiwan. So the human freedom argument is going to have to be made on its own, uh, particularly in terms of a system that's resilient it won't always pick the very best leaders, but it has a way, if somebody's an unpopular leader and not doing the right things, it has a way of replacing that leader. You know, that's a, a very beneficial thing so that if a Maduro-type leader comes along, you retain the ability to, to vote that person out of office. So there's no straight path on, on these things, but there's never been a straight path. And Pinker's key point is not that things always improve and that he's predicting the future, but it's a basic set of facts that, you know, we should start with the same set of facts about what is worker safety like today versus in the past? What is it like to be in, say, the U.S., you know, a kid who's gay versus the same thing 40 years ago? If you have cancer today, you know, versus 40 years ago, what's that like. These are things that our system in particular has done a fantastic job at doing. And, you know, I'm a person who sees a lot of that innovation continuing. And with the goalkeeper's construct, the idea is, is all this innovation continuing to help the poorest countries, you know, people in extreme poverty, at least once a year, there's a question about did we let HIV 
spread and create a disaster there? Did we continue to innovate malaria so we stay ahead of, of drug resistance? Why do we still have places left where over 15% of the kids die before the age of five? What's it going to take for those remaining areas to get below that? And so there's progress and then there's progress with equity. And Goalkeepers is a focus on that with equity part. You know, people can make fun of the fact that some of these goals that we work towards are probably not going to be achieved. They're more aspirational in nature, some of the the ways the SDGs got written down. But, you know, our view is we can highlight people who've done it well, be honest about the challenge, like the discussion about population growth, which, you know, most people aren't aware that we're moving from a quarter of the world's babies being born in Africa to almost half over the course of this century. And so, you know, you've got most of the world which might want to have more population growth, and you've got Africa where they have a lot of population growth, and whether that works out well hangs in the balance. I want to ask you a question about the far-off future. One of the things that has become culturally powerful in the effective altruism movement is an idea that we should be much more concerned about existential planetary-level risk because the weight of future human lives is so dramatic. And, and my colleague Dylan Matthews puts it in this way that I think is pretty powerful, which is that if humanity lasts as long as the dinosaurs, then about eight quadrillion people will live total. And that means over 99.99% of all the humans who ever live have yet to be born. And if that's true, then then anything, even very, very small reductions in the danger that those future lives won't happen, begin to outweigh even quite large improvements in, in the value of life now. Now, I'm curious how you think about weighing that far-off future against the present we live in. Um, as somebody who's very data-oriented and, and, and very interested in, in, in progress – is how do you think about the the people who say, you know what, most of what we do should be actually about making sure that the extinction level risks never happen. And if that means life now is not as good as it can be for for quite a lot of people, well, you know, 99.99% of the people who will live haven't been born. So we can't let the interests of the president overweigh those of the future. Well, the people in the future will have more knowledge and more resources than we have today. And they'll understand what those emerging problems look like. So, you know, if you said there was a philanthropist 500 years ago that said, no, I'm not going to feed the poor. I'm going to worry about what they might have thought the existential risk was. You know, I doubt their prediction would have made any difference in terms of what came later. So you got to have a certain modesty about thinking that you understand millions of years what's going to go on. Even understanding what's going to go on in a 50-year time frame, I would say, is very, very difficult. But, you know, if somebody thinks there's a magic thing they can do today that helps all those future lives in a free economy, they have a chance to, you know, build whatever it is they, they think does that. We do have a few things like climate change where you want to invest today to involve problems tomorrow. And, you know, I'm always a little surprised there's not more engagement on that issue. But there's not many that we can identify. Pandemic risk, weapons of mass destruction, 
You know, there's not many that we really understand with clarity. And so somebody who says, okay, let's just let a million people die of malaria because I'm, you know, building this temple that will help people a million years from now. You know, I'm, I wonder what the heck they're building that temple out of. The, the community, as I read it, has gotten very focused on the question of AI risk. I'm curious how you weight that as a danger to future human life. Actually, for that matter, um, Harari also talks quite a bit about that. It, it seems like something people right now have begun to feel is a very real, very broad-scale danger. And so they, they think that's more important than kids dying of malaria? I don't want to say more important, but the idea is something like if you can reduce the risk of, I don't want to put words in other people's mouths, but yes, that at the very least, there are a lot of good people working on malaria and the future is so important and AI is so dangerous that it's better for people on the margin to be working on AI risk now than to be... But they're actually not, most of those people aren't working on AI risk. They're actually accelerating progress in AI. Well, that, so, it may be a guild-oriented thing as well. I don't take away from that possibility. No, they, they like working on AI. Working on AI is fun. Uh, if they think what they're doing is reducing the risk of AI, I haven't seen proof of that. So they have a model. I mean, some people want to go to Mars. Some people want to live forever. Philanthropy's got a lot of heterogeneity in it, and people bring their intelligence and passion overall you know, it, it tends to work out. There's some dead ends, but every once in a while we get the green revolution or, you know, new vaccines or, you know, models for how education can be done better. So it's not something where the philanthropists all, you know, homogenize what they're doing. Even in the Giving Pledge, we, you know, celebrate the diversity of, of causes that, that people are investing in. Related to that, how do you weight animal suffering? You know, we know animals are sentient, and we know as human beings have, we've gotten more technologically advanced, we've been able to raise them in what are on the one hand more efficient, but on the other hand, more cruel ways for meat. And as we get richer and 10 billion people are alive, there's going to be a larger demand for them. How do you think about the moral weight of chickens and pigs and cows and and other kinds of suffering creatures in the future that we're building? Because of climate change, you know, I'm involved in a number of efforts to create meat equivalent products without using animals, uh, Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, Memphis Meats, a number of uh, things. And, you know, there actually is some progress there. You know, in the meantime, the foundation is uh, the biggest funder of, of new vaccines to improve animal health, animal genetics, so that we have both animals that uh, survive and are, are more productive. You know, so livestock is very important in terms of the diet issues or the you know, economic uh, value that you create out of the agricultural sector. You know, I do think over time, artificial meat will get popular and then people can say, you know, is it sad that there's less cows alive? I personally don't have a, a good metric of what type of cow life is better that it happened versus better that it didn't happen. But there's a lot of benefits that accrue to creating these meat-like products in a, in a different way. 
Do you think we should worry about, from a philanthropic view or a moral view, the suffering along the way? Um, you, you were talking about developing vaccines and, and genetic strains that, that make animals more productive and, and able to live in some of these conditions. But I think there's a certainly a strain of argument that making them more able to live in these conditions is creating lives of such suffering that there's a immoral or amoral, at the very least, dimension to it as well. Well, I think vaccinating animals is hard to argue against. You're preventing what are bad diseases for these animals and you're extending their lifetime. And so, you know, it's just like vaccines for, for humans. Well, I know we've reached here at the end of our time. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast in which you've given such great answers to in the past, which are, what are three of the books you've read recently that, that you would recommend to the audience? Well, Andy Puttycomb, the one of the founders of Headspace, uh, has a book which is a guide to Headspace, which is about meditation. And, you know, people that are all intrigued about that, you know, it's completely in a secular context. And uh, I think that is great. I think that's very well written. You know, I just read a book called Educated by uh, Tara Westover, which is about her growing up in a kind of religious uh, Idaho family and yet ending up getting a, a PhD at Cambridge. So that's, you know, an enlightening tale about growing up in tough circumstances and how she deals with her relationship with her parents and her siblings. That uh, was very good. And there's so many books now. You know, I haven't read the Woodward book yet. That sounds like it might be interesting. Ray Dalio's got one that I've just started that's about looking at the economic crisis. Uh, He did one called Principles. It's about managing people. But his more recent one looks at economic cycles and particularly the financial crisis and talks about how that happened and what we should do to avoid problems like that in the future. And, you know, he as deep an understanding as anyone does. So that I think is a great contribution. Bill Gates, thank you very much. Yeah, great to talk to you. Thank you to Bill Gates for being on the podcast. I actually would recommend if you get a moment reading the Goalkeepers Report, there's a lot in there that is worth thinking about. So we talked a bit about it, but there's a lot we weren't able to cover. So you can check it out. It's on their website, easy to find. But it's an interesting overview of a lot of different issues. A lot of people who are just experts in different fields write in it. It's not just the Gateses. So go check it out if you have a moment. Also, please check out Future Perfect. You can find it on Box. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to my producer, Jen Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Clancho is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back on Thursday. <laughs>